Thanks so much for tuning in to technically the first episode of the Sideline View podcast. As you might have noticed on whatever platform you're listening to this on, we've dropped the Blazers from the title name. Makes it a little less wordy. And that is because I'm working with a new company called the TalkCast Network. So if you guys want to go give them a follow on Twitter, I think that would be very well worth it. That's at TalkCast, T-T-S-M. Again, that's at TalkCast, T-T-S-M. So very excited to be working with them. I won't be exclusively covering the Blazers, even though that's not exactly what I was doing beforehand. But I was talking more about them than anyone else. But from here on out, it'll just be general NBA talk. And other than that, things will be business as usual. So let's get into it. We will go ahead and start off, though, with the Blazers and Nuggets series. And the first thing I got to say about that is big shout out to Tory Craig. Really played through uh, a tough injury. Got a, a nasal contusion is what they listed, listed it as. And as I kind of disclosed to you guys a couple episodes ago, contusion is just a code word in the NBA for bruise, which... A lot of times if you see a guy missing regular season games and contusion is the reason he's missing, it's really just for rest. But when you get contusion on your nose or in your nose, wherever it was, that's pretty tough. And so uh, nice job by uh, Tory Craig coming back into the game, playing through it, being a major contributor after. But overall, this was a very weird game too. CJ McCollum is the only player who eclipsed 20 points in the game. Uh, really, though, the big thing for the Blazers is that they were able to win a game on the road without Dame shooting very well, which is a big thing for them. And while I wouldn't expect them to have many more off-shooting nights throughout the series, whenever you're able to steal a game on a team's another team's floor, especially with your best player not having his best performance, that's a big-time win. And so the Blazers have done something that I don't think – the Nuggets can do nearly as well as them, and that's win games when your best player is not scoring much. Jokic didn't have a big-time scoring game here in Game 2, and that's something that luckily the Blazers can probably rely on to happen here and there throughout the series. Fortunately for the Blazers, Jokic is as detrimental as his passing is. He's a pass-first player, and a lot of times for his opposition – they're probably happy about that because he doesn't dominate as a scorer in quite the manner that he probably could. As someone who followed the Nuggets pretty closely throughout the regular season, followed Jokic very closely, it's almost weird to look back and see he averaged 20 points per game because it feels like every other game he's under 20. It feels like every other game he has like a 12-point game. So if... The Nuggets are going to win the series. They're going to need to win games when Jokic has a 12-point game. For the Blazers, they're going to have to win games if Dame's not getting 20-plus. And so the Blazers struck first. They got the win without their best player being at his best. So uh, that's important for them going forward. And the Nuggets, um, they're going to have to find some shooting when Jokic isn't uh, being a dominant scorer. And clearly had none of that shooting going on in game two, shooting 21% from three. That's not something the Blazers should rely on happening many more times throughout the series as the Nuggets are a very good three-point shooting team. But 
the last thing I want to talk about in that series is a tweet I saw regarding Ennis Cantor and someone asking if he has earned himself a big contract this summer. Short answer for me is no, unfortunately, because I do like Cantor a lot. And he's a walking bucket. He's a double-double machine. But that's what he's always been. And like what he's done with the Blazers, he hasn't earned himself a bigger contract because he's just done what he's always done. He's always been walking bucket, double-double machine. Like that That's who he is as a player. He's just doing it again in a different jersey now. But every team is aware of that. Before he ended up on waiver wires in the middle of this season, every general manager in the NBA should have had an idea what his per 36 minutes stats were. He's like a 22 and 12 guy per 36 minutes. Every GM in the league worth half their salt should have known that he was getting about those numbers per 36 minutes coming into the season. He'd been getting those for many years uh, before this, before the season. And so still there's the consensus out there among teams that he's not what they're looking for in a five man. And I guess that'll get me a little off topic here. So I do want to point out a little myth we have going on in the NBA right now about five men and the traditional five men more specifically. A lot of people are saying the traditional five man is going extinct and there's none left and they're like dinosaurs at this point. Like now you've got to be able to shoot threes and everything. Like That's just, just simply not true. I don't remember the last time I saw Rudy Gobert or Clint Capella, Stephen Adams, Jared Allen. I don't, I don't remember the last time I saw any of them shoot threes. Actually, Jared Allen, I think, does shoot a couple threes. So the other three guys, though, they're not shooting threes. They're not stretch fives in any way. But what they are is the rim protectors and their lob threats. That's what a five-man, a traditional five-man, has to have in their game these days in the NBA if they want to cash in on a big contract and if they want to be a consistent starter for a good team. And so Cantor, as well as Greg Monroe, is someone that comes to mind, is players who get their numbers. If you give them 30 minutes a night, they're going to get their numbers. And they're going to do it pretty efficiently, too. It's just they don't bring exactly what a team is looking for in a traditional five player because neither is a lob threat, neither is shooting threes, neither uh, can defend the pick and roll all that effectively. If they're getting put into a bunch of pick and rolls throughout the game, that's going to be problematic for them. And they're also not athletes and lanky athletes at that to go be great rim protectors behind the defense. So that's... The reason I don't think Cantor will be able to cash in on a big contract this year, personally, I feel like he's earned it. He's he's a bucket. I really like watching him play because he's very quirky and goofy in his movements, but he gets the job done. He gets buckets that aren't even available to be gotten. That's just how he is as a player. But unfortunately, he doesn't really fit the criteria of what teams are looking for. And for that reason, I don't think he'll be able to cash in this summer. Moving on to the Warriors and Rockets. This is a game that was close the entire time, but never felt like it at all. Never really felt like the Rockets were going to make a run to get back into it. Never seemed like the Warriors 
were in danger of losing grip on the game. Yeah, not a whole lot to say about it in terms of that. The only thing that I've been wondering is where the heck is Kenneth Fareed? We've seen him for five minutes in this series so far. Only two game sample size. We've seen him for five minutes in two games. He hardly played in the first round. And my question is, why is Nene getting any minutes over him? Nene's like, what is four minutes of Nene going to give you that four minutes of Kenneth Fareed isn't going to give you? So I don't, I don't have any answer for that. I don't know why D'Antoni decided to bury Fareed on the bench. It seems like this always happens to him, which I feel bad for him because of that. Because as a five-man, he's a rim protector and he's a lob threat. Actually, is he a rim protector? I don't know. He doesn't get many blocks at all. I, I got to correct myself mid-sentence on that. Fareed doesn't get any blocks, but he's definitely a lob threat. So he's half of what teams are looking for in a traditional five. But he is very undersized, so I get why he's been kind of pushed out uh, throughout the years in the NBA. But on a team like Houston that loves to go small ball, it doesn't make much sense to me why he wouldn't be out there, especially when the Warriors' primary lineup they've played this series is their Hamptons 5 lineup, where Draymond's the center being 6-7. I don't see how putting Farid out there on him would give you any uh, – disadvantage at all that uh, they I guess they like playing Tucker at that spot they've been playing Tucker at a decent amount of center throughout the series so far and uh, they they had a real weird lineup to close out game two they had Harden on KD which for everybody who acts like Harden doesn't play any defense played some pretty good D on KD at the end of the game with one eye so um Give him a little credit where it's due for, for taking on that challenge. They put Harden on KD. They put P.J. Tucker on Draymond. And then put Capella on Iguodala. So not exactly what you would expect. You'd probably think Capella would be on Draymond. Tucker would be on Iggy. But uh, the, the, the Rockets, are they're trying to pull out all the stops <laughs> that they can in this series. They're trying to do whatever they can to throw off the Warriors. They couldn't do it. They couldn't steal one. At Oracle, we'll see what they can do going home. But I don't feel like throwing Kenneth Freed out there would hurt their chances. So hopefully we'll see a little more of the Manimal back in Houston. Moving on to the Bucks and Celtics now. The Celtics really, really do seem like they have Giannis figured out. And it doesn't mean that they're going to stop him. There's only so much you can do to stop Giannis. But the Celtics know what this guy is going to do before he even does it. It's been great to watch. If you're an old head who loves watching defensive games, this has been a great series so far to see the the strategies and the coverages they have for Giannis through two games. Every time he does a spin move, he's spinning into a defender. Every time he drives baseline, you got someone like Horford coming over to slide over and build a wall. They've really cut down his ability to get – straight drives to the hoop as well as um, cutting down his ability to be a playmaker. And there's a couple of stats that really jumped out at me over these two games in Milwaukee. The two biggest to me is Giannis's field goal percentage and his assist per game. Field goal percentage, Giannis is through two games is shooting 37.8% from the field. From 99% of the league, 
that's not a big deal. That's not really a topic to discuss. It's through two games. It's a tiny sample size. So who cares? Two games shooting 38% doesn't matter. I mean, we don't even make a big deal when James Harden shoots 38% from the field. So, again, to make a big deal out of Jan shooting 38%, maybe it's a stretch, maybe it's far-fetched, but for as efficient of a player as he is, maybe the most efficient player we have in our game today in terms of volume scores. I mean, the guy's getting 28 points a game on 58% shooting from the field. That's absolutely insane. You can make an argument for his teammate, Malcolm Brogdon. Maybe he's the most efficient player in the league with his 50-40-90 club. Big Brogdon fan, so that's a – yeah, they're, they're missing a lot having him out right now. And uh, that hasn't been talked about a whole lot. But Giannis might be the most efficient player in the game today. Maybe we've seen in our generation 50% from the field is ridiculous to be a volume score. And so to make him shoot 38% through two games – in Milwaukee, that seems like a very big accomplishment for the Celtics, in my mind. Now, the fact that he's only getting three assists per game, that's pretty huge, too. It's half of what he was getting in the regular season. And if they can continue to make him, to me, I call it empty points when you're scoring a lot of points, but on a lot of shots, low low efficiency, those are empty points uh, by my terminology. So if they can keep making Giannis score empty points and not be a playmaker, you're not going to get a worse Giannis than that. You can't cut the guy's greatness down any more than that. That's the furthest you can cut it down to. And so if they can limit him to just being that bunch of a one-dimensional player, I can't see how the Celtics lose this series if they keep him keep him in check the way they have over two games. Now, again, I don't expect that to happen. I think Giannis will get loose. He'll... He'll adjust. I'm sure he'll be watching a lot of film. There's a lot of things for him to learn in this series about reading the defense, not just seeing the defender that's directly in front of you, that's your primary defender, but seeing beyond that guy, seeing the whole defense and how they shift and everything. He'll he'll be a better player coming out of this series, no doubt, if he can get any better. <laughs> but uh, th- this series will be good for him. It'll be a nice test for him. See uh, – how he and his team bounce back. And if they can become more of a playmaker down the stretch of this series, the way we saw him all regular season, that's going to get guys like Brooke Lopez, Nikola Meritic, Ersan Ilyasova. That's going to get all them loose. They're going to be hitting their threes. And the Bucks are a team, they shot the second most amount of threes in the league this year. They made the second most amount of threes this year. <laughs> it's a clunky way to do it because they've got this three-headed monster at center. <laughs> You've got three white seven-footers who just chuck threes. I don't know how – who allowed them to sign all three guys? Who? How, how is this allowed that they have all three of these guys on the same team? That doesn't seem right. Some other team should have picked up Elias Sova and Meritich just to keep this from happening. That seems ridiculous. But uh, they, they, they use their clunky fit to their advantage, shoot a lot of threes, and it's paid off for them. And if they get back and doing that, doing what they've done on regular season with Giannis feeding these guys, the Celtics might be in trouble. So again, if they can cut down Giannis's ability to be a playmaker, I think that's one of the major keys to the Celtics winning this series. The last thing I want to talk about is a little rivalry action. We've been talking about team versus team, but there's one rivalry out there 
that's better than all of these, even better than the Warriors and Rockets. And that is Melo versus retirement. The saga continues. He was recently talking about how he's open to coming back to the league and more importantly, open to coming back to the Knicks. I don't know if I'm surprised by this. Probably not. Because Melo really does seem very desperate to keep his career alive and keep going. It never really felt like he was fully retired. Even when you saw him at uh, D. Wade's final game, and he's, or final home game at least. And I know that was his final game that they were all at. Yeah, yeah. On the road in Brooklyn that LeBron and CP were at. It didn't really seem like Melo was quite retired. The ball came to him on the sideline. He, he wanted to take a shot. The crowd wanted him to take it. He seems like he still has that itch. He wants to keep going. I don't know if there's anything more he can accomplish at this state. I don't know what, yeah, like basically what good coming back will do for him other than just satisfy that itch to play. But him going back to the Knicks is uh, it's goofy because the Knicks have their sights set on these big time free agents. And it seems like there is now the possibility that the only free agent they end up landing is Carmelo Anthony. And I would absolutely love to see it if it happened. I haven't really disclosed my personal fandom on this pod before about what teams I really like. I've talked about players I like, but I haven't really disclosed what teams I'm a fan of. And so if you haven't caught on, that means I've done a good job of being unbiased. But I'm going to have to throw that out the, win- the window for a second here and just go ahead and let you guys all know, I absolutely hate the Knicks. They just suck so bad as a franchise. Their management hasn't done anything right since literally the 20th century. They've been bad for an entire century, basically, in my mind. And they act in the most arrogant ways possible by just trading Porzingis away to get a player that they should have just drafted in the first place. And do all these things to clear up cap space, have these two max slots, and they just think superstars are going to come running to them. And that just irks my nerves in the craziest way because I'm someone who wants to be in the NBA management someday. And so I see all these other teams building from the ground up, making great trades, making great draft picks, signing players off of waivers, doing all the the, the, the dirty stuff, like the, the things that aren't glorified to build a great team. And to me, it's kind of just doing it the right way. You're doing your own job. You go out and, and do what you're supposed to. And the Knicks refuse to just do their own job and go out and trade for players or draft good players. They always just have to fall back on, well, we're the Knicks. What free agent wouldn't want to play in the mecca of basketball? Come play at Madison Square Garden. What better place in the world to play? And they just keep banking on that, and they've done it for years, and they never even get any free agents. So that's really gets old to hear about. Every single summer, it's New York and it's L.A. Every single year, you just hear about all the free agents each team is supposedly going to get. They never end up getting them. The Lakers have gotten some free agents in their years. The Knicks get no one. And so I hope this year that changes. I hope they do get someone. I hope it's mellow. And... I don't, I don't hope Melo sucks. I hope he goes in and plays all right. I don't, I don't have anything against Melo. But I hope the Knicks continue to suck because they deserve it. They don't 
do anything they're supposed to, quite frankly. It's just annoying to see their management keep banking on the idea of getting free agents when they can't just, they've given none of these free agents any reason to have faith in them, to believe that they're coming to a competent organization that will make any of the right moves to help them win. For someone like Anthony Davis, who's saying, oh, I don't have competent people with the Pelicans. They can't win me, get me a, a team I can win with. Even though you do have Julius Randle and Drew Holiday and my boy Alfred Payton, you got pieces over there. What's going to the Knicks going to what, – what has their management shown you that's any better than the Pelicans? That's all I'm saying. So I did have to disclose that to you guys a little bit. Now you've been let in on one of the teams I absolutely hate. So I'm wishing the Knicks all the best in terms of getting mellow this summer and that being it and then winning another 20 games next year. Hopefully they'll trade Mitchell Robinson somewhere else so he can actually flourish because I really like him. But that's about all I have for you guys today. Thanks for tuning in to officially the first episode of Simply the Sideline View podcast. We'll have more on the way for you guys. Appreciate you for tuning in. Peace.